Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Scott Richards, right here. Hey, Scott. Yeah. And we are looking forward to answering your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to take advantage of our resources. First and foremost, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's usable both for and during and after the broadcast to send us your sincere Bible questions. If you want to chat with us, know that there is a time and place for that in person, but this email is intended for receiving your Bible questions on the broadcast. Note that as the intended reason. If you want to join us on social media, our Twitter page is, of course, going to be joining the mix soon. We've actually found a way to get the whole broadcast on there, so that'll be fun and forthcoming. But for right now, Twitter will be on the back burner. Scott R4H will be where we can receive your questions. But if you'd like to watch us there on X, that will, of course, be available hopefully by tomorrow, if at the latest next Wednesday. Those of you listening to this broadcast pre-recorded, it's either old news or something went horribly wrong. Facebook, though, is still fine. We will be there at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like there, you'll be notified when we are going live. You'll have a chat screen for the live broadcast where you can leave us your questions or an inbox where you can private message us if the question is anonymous. The same is true for YouTube. If you hit the notification bell and give us a like, do so at the page A Reason for Hope. And there you will be able to not only engage with us as we are going live, be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. For us, it'll be 4 to 5 p.m. Arizona time, where that is in your world, the technology can sort it out. That, of course, will be a acceptable place to receive your questions and note as well the comment sections on later dates. You'll also get access to, as well as on Facebook, our bi-weekly Bible studies. That will be going through at the moment on Wednesday nights, the book of Esther, and on Sundays, the book of Acts. And this coming Wednesday, in fact, we're going to be entering into Easter month, so we're going to do a discussion on the sufficiency of the atonement. If that intimidates you, don't worry, we'll make it simpler than it sounds. Also note, we have a website if you want to avoid social media altogether, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. We will also have a chat box there, a way to receive your questions there. Just click on the Watch Live tab, and everything will be hopefully straightforward. If uh, you're familiar with the concept of a computer, you can navigate that, I'm sure, just fine. But before we venture into answering those questions, we want to make sure the Holy Spirit speaks and, of course, equips us for every good work. So why don't we ask him? Let's do that. Lord, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for guiding our conversation in our direction, Lord. Uh, our flesh is weak, but your power is great, and your word is sufficient to not only answer the questions that are people's minds, but to touch their hearts in a way that changes them forever. Uh, Lord, we pray that miraculous manifestation of your power would happen all over the world, that we would answer only the questions that you would have in mind for us, and that uh, we'd be able, through the power of your Spirit, even the spiritual giftedness, to be able to get through to the questions that might even be behind the questions, questions of the heart. Thank you that we can commit this into your hands, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. All right, so what's going on today? Well, a uh, couple of updates uh, going on as far as uh, Israel is uh, concerned. Probably the uh, most significant one is uh, that uh, there is a confab that has taken place between the head of the Iranian Quds Force, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, 
units. Uh, the Quds Force, by the way, is recognized uh, by our State Department as a uh, terrorist group in this world. But uh, if you are uh, among the leaders of Iran, you look at them as your uh, crack forces, your special forces, your elite. Uh, they met uh, with Hassan Nasrallah in Lebanon, uh, and it was reported that Tehran gave Hezbollah, the ter- terrorist organization in Lebanon, the green light to prepare for a large-scale attack on Israel. This attack will be conditioned, triggered, if you will, if Israel uh, goes ahead and invades the Rafah region in Gaza. Rafah is the farther, farthest southernmost region in Gaza. It directly abuts the uh, territory uh, of Egypt, and uh, apparently, according to the best intelligence that we've been able to uh, glean, uh, people like Yaha Sanwar, who is uh, the head honcho directing uh, the terrorist efforts against Israel in Gaza, uh, is somewhere in the Rafah region. Uh, we told you yesterday that there are uh, continuing reports that uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel uh, was given the option to take out Yaha Sanwar on two different occasions. However, he uh, did not pull the trigger, if you will, on these operations because uh, apparently the intelligence also indicated that a great many of the hostages, over 133, still held by the terrorists in Gaza, would have died as a result of uh, the, uh, the attack. So it was weighing out whether uh, taking down the significant terrorist leader, Yaha Sanwar, uh, would be worth the loss of these uh, civilians. Uh, we talked a little bit about that, the pros and the cons. The bottom line is uh, that uh, an organization like Hamas would have someone who would step into uh, Sanwar's shoes. Uh, and uh, the idea of taking out uh, hostages as a result of just going after that one target, well, you can see why the trigger wasn't pulled. Uh, the uh, noose is tightening, however, uh, and when Israel enters into uh, Rafah, despite the noise on the channel that was created by President uh, Joe Biden while he was eating an ice cream cone yesterday, saying that uh, there was going to be a ceasefire in place by Monday, Hamas uh, immediately publicly repudiated that idea, uh, and uh, Israel essentially said, "We this is the first we've ever heard of it. So uh, troubling to see uh, these kind of statements being made that really have no basis, in fact, for the actors that are well, on the stage, so to speak. But uh, the bottom line is, is that Israel is committed to uh, going on into Rafah. Uh, it is committed to doing this whether or not Hezbollah uh, launches full-scale military attacks. And if you've been following what's been going on, uh, in Lebanon, uh, Israel uh, has responded to Hezbollah attacks across the border uh, by uh, making uh, strikes deeper and deeper into Lebanon, into the Beka Valley, the city of Baalbek, and others. Uh, a, a large part of the Hezbollah air defense system was taken out earlier today by an Israeli strike. So, uh, again, uh, Iran definitely seems to be afraid that the IDF is going to invade Rafah. Uh, that probably means that the back will be broken as far as their proxies, Hamas, uh, being able to continue to hold on and hold out against Israel in that particular region. 
Uh, it was also reported that the commander of the Iranian Quds Force uh, recently visited Lebanon, uh, and uh, in, during this meeting, Nasrallah said that it is certain that an Israeli attack in Lebanon will be carried out soon. He asked the Quds Force in advance for complete freedom of action against it. So uh, what we may be seeing in the next week uh, or two is Israel finally pivoting and moving into uh, that, that Rafa region. When that happens, uh, expect a, a massive uh, strike from the north and not to underestimate the resources that uh, Hezbollah, the terrorist group in Lebanon, has. Um, estimates of over 250,000 rockets, including precision munitions that can strike uh, deep into Israeli territory, uh, are at their disposal. So uh, be praying for the peace of Jerusalem going on uh, in that region, uh, you know, as, uh, as things progress. Uh, the other uh, incident that took place, two other incidents that were pretty troubling, uh, there was a terrorist that killed two Israelis today uh, in an area, a checkpoint in the city of Eli, uh, which is uh, just outside of Jerusalem. The terrorist who killed the Israelis and was killed as a result was a member of the Palestinian Authority police force. Uh, he has been identified. Now, that raises another question. Uh, what's going to happen in Gaza the day after the fighting ceases? Well, the United States is pushing the idea that uh, the Palestinian Authority, uh, the Fatah faction that is headed up by Mahmoud Abbas, would come in and provide uh, the wherewithal, the infrastructure, the policing, and so on. Well, if this is the kind of policing that is going on right now uh, by Mahmoud Abbas and uh, the Palestinian Authority, you can see why that is going to be an absolute non-starter. There was also a riot that took place in Gaza uh, when a humanitarian aid truck was uh, uh, essentially mobbed by uh, dozens of Gazans uh, during uh, the distribution of uh, aid in the north of uh, the, uh, the enclave in the Gaza Strip. Uh, this turned into a riot. Uh, Israeli uh, troops were called in to quell this rioting, uh, but uh, by this time many Pal uh, Palestinians had been trampled uh, in the charge toward the truck and killed, and then uh, a number of the Palestinians turned on the idea of forces with the idea of trying to uh, kidnap them or seize them as extra hostages. Uh, they were warned not to approach within five meters of uh, the Israeli positions. A number of them did, and they were taken down. There was no other shooting, not from a tank or from the air, towards the convoy with a humanitarian aid, in spite of some of the propaganda that is being put forth that says the opposite of that. And uh, again, you want to see pictures of exactly what was going on uh, in this particular incident. Highly recommend going to our friend Amir Serfati's uh, Telegram uh, page. You can download the Telegram app, and uh, he does a tremendous job of providing up-to-the-minute uh, updates about everything that is happening in that region. So a uh, very good uh, source to be able to turn to during these times. And uh, again, be praying uh, for the peace of Jerusalem. Be praying for the Israeli government, uh, Yoav Gallant, the IDF head, as well as uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the difficult decisions that they are going to have to make, especially if uh, Lebanon uh, and Hezbollah in Lebanon launches a full-scale attack on Israel in the north. 
And with that in mind as well, we also have the Wycombe Karima Foundation continuing its calls for violence to be not only included, but escalated during the month of Ramadan. But due to the fact that they are out of the UK, they can hide behind the veil of Islamophobia and no one is allowed to investigate any participation they may have in those calls to violence. And it's also important to note as well, uh, a Welsh singer named uh, Charlotte Church uh, led a chant for the river to the sea very, very recently. And it's important for us to understand as Christians what that means, because hopefully, this is with the best of assumptions here, the only reason a believer in Christ would say that is because they don't know what they're saying. What does that chant mean, and should it ever come across the lips of a Christian? Well, uh, the meaning of the uh, term from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, uh, sounds romantic, sounds noble at first blush until we start asking questions. When people are chanting this particular slogan, you have to say, okay, what river and what sea are we talking about? Well, the river is the Jordan River. The sea is the Mediterranean Sea. Which is all of Israel. Uh, Yeah, essentially what they're saying is Palestine will be free, but what they're saying in essence, if you are among those who originated this particular chant, i.e. the people in Hamas, what you are saying is that that region will be free of Jews. Drive them out from whence you drove you out. Yeah, so, you know, very uh, Quranish, Chronic. Phraseology that's involved with all of that. So uh, essentially, those who are chanting such a thing are saying, uh, we're pro-genocide. And note, not the modern term for genocide, which is a war that you're losing. We mean the actual definition of genocide, which is targeting and seeking the extermination of a group based on their genetic heritage. Israel is not targeting Hamas because they are brown. It is because they committed atrocities, and I don't limit that to October 7th. They only exist to commit atrocities against the Jewish people. They have honored ceasefires while Hamas has dishonored them, and now they are seeking to drive them out why? Because they have shown that they cannot live at peace with Israel, and one of the sound and sane functions of government is to, in fact, limit evil by force. And if you don't say that Hamas is evil, I'd call you college-educated. Well, I'm college-educated. I'm modern, not college-educated. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe that uh, Hamas is anything else but who they claim to be, a terrorist organization. So there you go. With that said... Sorry to bum me out, but we uh, make sure we're full transparent here. Uh, Going out to your questions, we got a few that have been sent in right away, so let's get right to it. A question from Mike who wants to know, how do we determine if near-death experiences, or NDEs, as Gary Hammerboss calls them, are legitimate or not, specifically people who say they have been to heaven or hell? Well, it's a good question, Mike, and when this issue comes up somewhat frequently on the broadcast, obviously... For every testimony someone shares of having a near-death experience that confirmed the Christian view of the afterlife, there are almost, and I'll say that generously, almost as many confirming the Hindu afterlife, the Islamic afterlife, the atheist afterlife, and so forth. So, and I reference Gary Hammerboss intentionally because he's one of the leading voices addressing this topic and all the data involved with it. Near-death experiences are a fantastic resource when it comes to debunking the idea that there is no possibility of consciousness after you physically die. 
when people have zero brain activity and people are literally just dead to rights on the table, uh, usually because of a misjudging or overdose of medicine and painkillers that ends up making the person go brain dead temporarily. The experiences that are documented there can be fraudulent to some point, but others aren't. And if you have a wide range of reports, this is how they do research in these topics, only one needs to be legitimate in order for the concept of you die, you're done. This body is the only place that houses consciousness. Now, what would lead even an atheist to have to admit objectively that there is in fact an existence, a consciousness after this physical body gives out? Well, for example, there was a report, then this is documented in Gary's articles, of someone who was basically brought to a hospital. They hadn't been there before. Right. They weren't given outside reports. They were a very localized and unconsciously brought into the hospital individual. And as they were operating, the reports from the doctors, and this could be verified medically, were flatlining. Now, as the body was dead to rights, not necessarily brain dead, but this will be important, physically not functioning without the aid of machines. The individual reported the presence of a watch on the roof of a hospital he had never been to and also observed a traffic accident that took place as he was being operated on. Not something that he may have heard from the news and then just somehow got lucky, but was able to describe the cars that were involved in the incident and who was responsible in detail. Now, with that in mind, what do doc, What would a, a secularist have to say about that? Well, they'd go, well, I would have more reason to assume that this was staged, that this information was fed, or that this was all doctored. But given the fact that's not the case, that there was actually corroboration on this issue, meaning multiple people reporting the same thing and supporting the claims from people who had nothing to gain by the report, they would have to acknowledge that they could see without eyes, they could understand without a brain. They could comprehend and process visible light despite not having ocular senses. That someone who was cut off from all physical means of taking in information could observe an environment he had never seen and, and, and understand what was being seen. So what does that tell you? It debunks a very, very, very specific assumption from the secular worldview. And that's what? that there is no consciousness after this body, that apart from this body, you die, you're done. So Bill Nye's going to have to find a new career. But the point of emphasis is this. When we're talking to a secularist or an atheist or even an agnostic about the concept of the afterlife, just proving it's there doesn't bring them to the altar. And this is why we need to be careful not just about the concept of NDEs, but be just as skeptical just as willing to take in more information as a secularist would, because I started this conversation with, you have just as many reports of people seeing Jesus as you do seeing Krishna or Buddha or you yeah. know, fill in the blank. So make Joseph sure. Smith, yeah. yeah and, and this is what's going to be most important. When it comes to those within our own camp, and I'll pass this off to you, Dad, um, when people claim to see the devil and they're brought to a lurid, I guess, uh, caricature of an ancient prison where the demons are cursing God and there's scorpions and snakes everywhere and stuff. 
I can say beyond a reasonable doubt that they're lying, that they are in fact not representing what is actually there in the afterlife, but I may be so bold. What reason do we have, and if you agree with me, that this is in fact the case? When someone says, I went to heaven and I saw these mansions, and my mansion was greater than the Apostle Paul's, not, not joking, by the way, yeah. and he commended me on my great ministry, which is why you have to buy me another Learjet, and so forth. People claim to have these visions. Why is it that we not only squint, we take them cautiously, Yeah, but we would say that those objectively are false? Yeah, you know, I think there's uh, like two sides of the river, if you will, that you have to uh, kind of keep in place if you're not uh, going to get carried away one way or the other uh, regarding the uh, idea of uh, visions or dreams or things along this line. Uh, Are such things possible scripturally? Yes, they are possible. As a matter of fact, uh, when Simon Peter was explaining the coming of the Holy Spirit, He quotes from the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, when he said this, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants and my manservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So uh, the idea that uh, there could be people that have visions or dreams legitimately from God, um, whether it's in the context of uh, being in a hospital where you flatline, whether someone just has a dream or a vision that comes to them in in the night, a vision is something that you see while you are conscious and going on here. Uh, We see all through the book of Acts that these sort of things were part and parcel of the experience. Uh, that is uh, documented there. Uh, For instance, uh, Simon Peter had a vision of a uh, tarp being let down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals on it, saying, uh, Arise, Peter, uh, kill and eat. And he says, Never, my Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And uh, the voice from heaven said, Don't call anything common or unclean that God has declared clean. Happened three times, then boom, there's three Gentiles knocking at the door saying, Come, share the gospel with our master, Cornelius the Roman centurion. Boom, there's a vision. Uh, A dream? Well, in uh, the uh, book of Acts, chapter 18, we are told that the apostle Paul had a dream where the Lord stood beside him and said, uh, continue to speak out, Paul. Don't be afraid, for no one will harm you. I have many people in this city. Uh, Again, another example of this that we find in the Bible. But we also find in the Bible uh, a couple of very, another important uh, detail. Not everyone who comes to you and says that I've had a vision or a dream is legit. They are not necessarily telling us the truth about God. In the book of Colossians, uh, we are warned in uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18, let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with an increase that is from God. So here we see that there are going to be people that are puffed up in their fleshly mind. They're going to try to present themselves as having some kind of spiritual insight, some kind of spiritual experience. Uh, But uh, I think 
uh, whenever somebody has a spiritual experience, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the go-to passage in my mind as far as uh, being able to fine-tune your discernometer is found in uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, God warns the people of Israel about a possibility that could happen uh, in their uh, experience walking with God and being a nation under God. It says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So uh, the consequences for being a dreamer of dreams, even one that dreams or has a vision and it comes to pass, say a prediction is in, in mind there. And yet there's, well, in a sense, a theological poison pill as part of all of this. Uh, you know, say, for instance, the lurid picture of the devil torturing people in the afterlife. No example of that in Scripture. Uh, Satan isn't the one who runs hell, despite what you may have seen in Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Uh, you, you won't go there. Yeah. So uh, the, the bottom line is, if these things are not accurate and not in line with Scripture, then that person has spoke presumptuously, uh, they're a false prophet. The scripture says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be intimidated by them. And that's where a lot of these things come down to. Uh, individuals realize that it's a manipulative tactic. They can kind of get the glossy eyes and the vibrato voice and say, oh, I had a vision last night and you were in it. And God has a direct message for you. Uh, you can go, whoa, you know, I don't want to turn my back on a message from God. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess maybe I could give you this advice. Every now and then on a semi-regular basis, uh, a person will come up to me and say, you know, I feel like the Lord gave me a word for you, or I feel like uh, the Lord gave me a dream that I need to share with you. And my immediate response is, well, share away. Uh, again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 and following says, uh, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So uh, I'll be more than in willing to give them a hearing, but when I give them a hearing, I'll say to them, you know, that's very interesting. I'm going to pray about that and look into the Word and see if it checks out. Well, the response that the person has to hearing that usually will tell the tale, because if it's legit, if it's someone that the Lord really has spoken to, they'll go, okay, that, that's great, because everything has to be checked out uh, by Scripture. But fascinatingly, uh, when you call a false prophet on something like that and say, well, that's all well and good, but I'm going to look into the Scriptures and see if it checks out, they tend to get really, really peeved. How dare you question me? I'm a prophet of God. You know, you're, you're blaspheming and you're rejecting the word of the Lord and curses are going to be poured out. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus uh, became a curse for me. I'm freed from the curse of the law. Well, but um, so, you know, that's how you can pretty much tell whether you're dealing with someone legit. Uh, the message and the messenger need to line up uh, and the message and the messenger need to line up 
with what the scripture has to say. So, you know, again, near-death experiences, one thing I would tell you is they're just that. Uh, they're near death. The person does come back after all. Uh, in my book, Reasonable Doubts, uh, I detail a court case where an individual who had been sentenced to life in prison uh, for murder uh, died on an operating table, uh, flatlined, so to speak, and uh, then said, well, I died on the operating table. I was dead for three minutes. I served my sentence. I served uh, until I died. And the judge looked at him and said, the fact that you're standing here in this courtroom uh, today tells me that you didn't die. You're back here again. So I'm not saying that people don't have uh, extraordinary experiences or that that sort of thing can't happen. The one you quote uh, from Gary Habermas, uh, really a very interesting one uh, indeed. And just one of dozens. Yeah, but uh, why do I believe in an afterlife? Not because of something that happened in an operating room, but because of something that happened three days after Jesus was certifiably dead, dead certified by no less than four uh, Roman witnesses, including stabbing him in the side uh, with a wound where blood and water flowed out of the wound, uh, definitely dead, uh, but then three days later, definitely alive again, seen by an overwhelming amount of eyewitnesses who were so overwhelmed by the experience of seeing the living Jesus that they were willing to die, not for a belief, not for a vision, not for a dream, but what they had seen and heard. Jesus had risen from the dead. So that's why I believe Jesus' words about an afterlife. That's what my hope in an afterlife is. These testimonies, interesting. Sometimes they can be edifying. Sometimes they can be really distracting. But the reason that we believe there's a heaven is Jesus said in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And I think the best metric as well, if you encounter someone who went to heaven and doesn't seem to shut up about the details, sorry to be crass, but we're making sure this point's driven home, we're talking about someone who is in direct opposition, I'd say, to a legitimate vision of heaven, where in 2 Corinthians, Paul was given a vision of paradise, and he couldn't put it into words. He literally said it would be a crime for me to try to express the things that I saw and heard. So if that's the case, I know why I trust Paul, and he is one of the reasons why I don't trust you. Yeah. So make that point. Then likewise, when someone says, oh, I went to hell, and it was like this, this, and that, once again, Jesus did not go into details about hell. He made a comparison of it to three things. The first was outer darkness. The second was Gehenna, which is a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, and a lake of fire in the book of Revelation. Now, I, again, don't have a lot of experiences with absolute darkness. I went to Karchner Caverns, all of your sponsorship, when I was in grade school, and they let me experience it for a little bit, and it was freaky. Yeah. But if that uh, were to suddenly transform into a lake of fire, the darkness would have been disrupted. So these illustrations are probably pointing to something that all three have in common. Again, I didn't go on a lot of field trips to a garbage dump. Sometimes I compare the school to it, but it wasn't a legitimate and certified waste management Insert facility. cafeteria food joke here. Yeah. Yes. All of these are pointing to one common theme, and that's what? This is just my opinion. A place you don't want to go. 
Right. I think that's the fairest point Jesus was making in these uh, comparisons. It's not saying that the localization of hell is literally to the, I think, southwest of the city of David in this barren valley, which isn't so barren anymore because the Hebrews actually know how to do gardening now. When it comes to the actual issue, what do we know about heaven and what do we know about hell? Hell, place you don't want to go. If they keep their mouth shut <laughs> and only open it to be in line with scripture, we didn't need the revelation anyway. What are we told about heaven? You can't put it into words. All you can say that makes so wonderful is Jesus is there. If they have more to say than that, I have no reason to listen to them. Yeah, and you know, there's another really interesting insight from Luke chapter 16, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah. Uh, when uh, the, the rich man is basically told by Abraham uh, that there's this great gulf fixed and there was nothing that he could do about his destiny. His destiny had been decided. Uh, he said, well, then send Lazarus back and warn my five brothers of this place lest they come here. Uh, and Abraham's response is really interesting. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone comes to them back from the dead, they will listen. And Abraham said, even if someone comes back from the dead, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, uh, they won't hear him. And that was the point of him telling them about this event. It was to draw attention to the right. fact that Jesus would rise from the dead. The Pharisees still wouldn't listen. Right. They had asked for a sign. But what an interesting thing Abraham says. Uh, if they don't hear the scripture, even if someone resurrected, came back from the dead and told them, what was going on on the other side. They wouldn't listen. So if people won't hear the scripture, just because somebody has a dream or they have a vision uh, or something like that, what makes you think that is somehow going to be more persuasive to them if they won't hear the clear teachings of Jesus on this subject? And by the way, Jesus had more to say uh, about uh, heaven and hell than virtually anybody else in the scripture, including hell itself. So there you go. <laughs> okay. For we those got, listening we, on radio, I am making the most restrained face possible. We just got a question about what we think of Michael Heiser. You know what's really interesting? Uh, before we went on the air on our X platform, I had a person ask me a question about henotheism. Uh, apparently, there was a dust-up earlier today about Logos Bible Software because uh, the company that does Logos Bible Software uh, also uh, has an incredible amount of literature that they distribute of varying degrees, apparently, of quality because uh, there were a number of, well, um, pot-boiler uh, kind of uh, romance novels that made it through their grid that had some aspects to them that were, well, for lack of a better term, Song of Solomon. Well, pornographic. Mm. So big dust up regarding all of that. And, and there were some people that said, well, you know, Logos Bible Software uh, promotes the teachings of Michael Heiser, uh, a Hebrew scholar who has since, Just ask him. He'll tell you. since departed. And uh, Michael Heiser uh, really created a hue, cry, and an uproar. Uh, when he published a book called The Unseen Realm. And uh, essentially, he talked about how, uh, didn't it begin, a conversation he had in the foyer after church 
regarding a uh, particular psalm, psalm and yeah. finding the Bible, and uh, you know that uh, God takes his stand among the gods, among the council of the gods or the Elohim. Uh, and uh, so from this, Heiser put together this idea that there is a divine council, that there is God who is the God, the true and living God, but there are also other gods, the gods of the nations, gods like Zeus, gods like Hermes, gods and so on, uh, actually have a reality. Yeah, and again, he's not the first person to come up with this, but he's certainly the most popular modern proponent of it. And again, it has since departed, so I'll restrain myself we'll, here. We'll but be, I have no love. We'll, we'll give him the respect that, you know, the fact that he's a believer in Christ, uh, his ideas about this divine counsel, I don't think, rise to the place of saying that he's not a Christian. Well, but, and let me just be frank here. The reason why I have to restrain myself so much is because the reason I found out about him in the first place was because Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other cult groups were referencing his work as support for either condemnation or distortion of Christianity. So his contribution to the world, and, and again, I don't necessarily fault him for this because in the world of scholarship, it's publish or die. And the only way for him to produce a consistent amount of material that wasn't already being produced by someone else would be to put his credentials forward and say, here's something that isn't being written on, on all of that much about, so I'm just going to kind of make this my, my, uh, my thing. Right. And so when people get involved with him or Jonathan Kahn or any of the other individuals that really like to build up a very Pentecostal bent towards the scriptures, a very sensationalist, a very dramatic, almost a borderline science fiction comic booky way of handling the Bible, he appealed, unfortunately, to a lot of people, and most of them were cult groups. Now, the claim of henotheism, as you defined, the belief that there are other gods in the nations, wouldn't be that much of a problem if he was very reserved in how far he went with the claim. Now, the reason why I say wouldn't be is because he didn't reserve his claim. He made that his hermeneutic for the entirety of the gospel and said that our ultimate purpose is to replace the pantheon of gods out there that ultimately didn't keep their borders. Now, when we're talking about, you know, you don't understand the Hebrew, you're not a Hebrew scholar, and that's pretty much it. All of the arguments in favor of Michael Heiser's position are built around an appeal to authority. And if we're going to at least give credence to his expertise in the Hebrew language, the fact in the matter is the majority of his handling of Scripture does not come from the Hebrew language, but an eisegesis of Scripture. And reading into it, this is how the Hebrew culture of that time would have interpreted that passage. And how do you know? Well, I'm a Hebrew scholar and you're not. So when it comes to, regardless of, again, your opinions of whether or not his field would give him more authority or reach, if someone has to constantly thump their chest to establish territory, they're behaving like a gorilla, not a scholar. If someone is going to put forward their credentials as the sole reason to trust them, if the only reason you listen to us is because we have pastor, or in my case, mushroom free below our faces. Uh, I, I deliberately do that, by the way, because we're just trying to have fun here. It's not a reason to trust somebody. Facts spoken from the mouths of morons are still facts. And to quote John Lennox, nonsense from the mouths of geniuses is still nonsense. When it comes to it, 
people will usually take in a positive bent for him saying, well, no, you didn't miss, you misunderstood him. And then I can give quotes of the passage, and then they would say, well, no, you're taking that quote out of context, then I can cross-examine it with a book, which I've read three times at this point. And then they'd say, well, you're not yeah, a Yeah, we listened scholar. to it on a trip to California. Yeah, I, yeah. I, again, we mm -hmm. got so many questions about it, and I didn't want to be the only one here who thought that this was all insane, that I forced you to have to suffer through it with me, and you told me to stop. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, well yeah, the, 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 the gist of it, I guess, if we're really going to get down to all of this, because you know everybody can quote a book of his or whatever, is his interpretation of Psalm 82. His uh, theological system stands or falls, essentially, on his take on this particular passage. Psalm 82 says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty, he judges among the gods, or literally the Elohim, or the mighty ones. Uh, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, literally Elohim, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, and you shall inherit the nations. Now, the gist of Michael Heiser's thesis is that these Elohim being referred to here, or mighty ones, are some kind of divine council. They are small g gods, if you will, or the gods of other nations. But when we take a look at Psalm 82 and we read the whole thing here, what we discover is this is a rebuke to literal human beings who are occupying the role of judges in Israel. How do we know this? Well, first of all, uh, we see that uh, these particular Elohim being mentioned here, or mighty ones, will die like men and fall like one of the princes. And how did Jesus apply they're, it in John chapter 8? They're, they're not individuals that are eternal or spiritual in their nature. They are human beings. They are human beings that were given one task uh, by God in Israel, and that is to judge the people of Israel according to God's word. Well, people say, well, why are they referred to then as Elohim or mighty ones? Well, going back to the book of Exodus chapter 3, you might recall that when God gave Moses the commission to go to Israel at the burning bush, uh, Moses tried to beg off and say, uh, I'm not eloquent, neither before or, or since. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm slow of tongue and, and I can't speak. Well, God says, well, your brother Aaron can speak. Uh, I will give my words to you and you will give my words to Aaron and he will speak for you. And you shall be as Elohim to him. Now, that doesn't mean that Moses was somehow given the promotion to being God or a God-like creature, but what it was talking about was that there would be a seamless transfer. God would reveal his truth to Moses. Moses would reveal that truth to Aaron. And when Moses revealed that truth to Aaron, it would be just the same, just as flawlessly delivered as if Aaron were listening to God himself. So what that is the only thing that is being taught there. So, so in so Psalm, saying, so in Psalm 82, to sum up, these judges were to occupy the same role. They weren't to offer their takes, 
their two cents worth. They were to be flawless conduits of God's word applied to the specific needs of the Jewish people. They were failing at this in a radical level. That's all Psalm 82 is all about. So you're saying that to whom the word of God came, he would call them gods. Right. Because they were to be perfect, flawless representatives of God, not because they were, in fact, divine. And, of course, he would redefine that as referring to being synonymous with spiritual, which we don't grant. But here's the point, and this is the biggest challenge to his henotheistic views and anyone else who would propone it. He's not the only one. Um, Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Before me there was no God formed, there will be none after me. Now that's incredibly straightforward. If there is one God presently, there was none before him, and there will be none after him, all that I guess stands to reason is that the Hebrew scholar needs to tell me what word is that for God there. It would be Elohim, interestingly, not yeah. Jehovah, not to mince and dance around the term and go, well, you know, Elohim has a broad connotation and words. It's like, it's not denying that there isn't any other God. It's saying that there's no God like Jehovah. Okay, Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, Jehovah, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God, what's the word? Elohim. Elohim. Besides me. Yeah. And who's the me? It's yeah. Jehovah. Yeah. So if we're going to then mince those details, okay, stay in the same chapter. Isaiah 44, 8, do not tremble nor be afraid. Have I not long since announced to you and declared it, that you are my witnesses? Is there any God besides me? What's the word for God? Elohim. Or is there any other rock? I know of none. So either God got a case of amnesia when he was speaking to Isaiah, or he's being very, very clear here. Now, if you say, and he, uh, Heiser also says this in the Unseen Realm, well, when it says sons of God, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, that's a divine connotation. It's referring to spiritual creatures. Well, never refers to human beings. Okay, Hosea 1.10. It's referring to the sons of God as Israel. He says, well, that's post-resurrection, and that, that, that's referencing, you know, the idea that they've become gods, so that, that, I don't allow that. Well, I don't care. Yeah. I'm going to take the Bible at face value more than your well, credentials. Here, and, and, he, and here's the bottom line. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, it says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. In fact, the Hebrew word, I want to get into Hebrew, for idols is literally nothings. They are nothings. They uh, are not some representative of a god, not some uh, piece of clay that somehow a god uh, harmonically invests itself in. Uh, and these are other things that he tries to get into in his book. All on um, the assumption of his yeah. using words. So, you know, the, the, the bottom line is this. Uh, there the, the, the gods and the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. But straight up. Uh, in other words, they're nothings. They're nothing in the world. Uh, you know, those who make them will become like them. Eyes they have, they don't see. Ears they have, they don't hear. Noses they have, but they don't smell, we are told in the Psalms. Uh, and so, you know, for someone to say that there's this divine council out there that's made up of Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and all these other uh, gods... Uh, the, the Bible simply in its clearest 
uh, and most direct statements doesn't support that. And I, I think it illustrates a really important uh, principle that can keep you out of a peck of trouble uh, in terms of uh, the latest and greatest doctrine to come down the block. It's this. When the apparent sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Lest you believe in nonsense. So, you know, when we take a look at Psalm 82, and we see that clearly the Elohim being mentioned here, these judges, are individuals who were judging unjustly and showing partiality to the wicked. They were people who should have defended the poor and fatherless and doing justice to the afflicted and needy, delivering the poor and needy and freeing them from the hand of the wicked. So the individuals involved here were judges that were being bribed and falling asleep at the switch. There's no need to do this huge jump into inventing some kind of heavenly council that is going on here. And which was exactly the same conclusion that Jesus came to in John 10, 34. So make sure that that's clear as well. So, you know, as far as personality, one thing I will say as far as personalities go, um, you know, what do I think of Michael Heiser? Apparently he was a born-again believer in Christ, tragically passed away from cancer. I believe he's home in his reward. Uh, the teachings, however, of Michael Heiser, without judging him, need to be given the Berean treatment. Uh, the Bereans in Acts 17.11 uh, received the word with eagerness and searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were really so. I think when you search the scriptures in their apparent sense and not have to do a lot of hand-waving and say, well, you know, uh, you know, the uh, Akkadian people believe this about their gods, and, you know, we this have this. This is how and, the Bible should yeah, be interpreted you know, now. So, uh, you know, when you get into that kind of hand-waving and um, expertise-ism that says, well, only somebody that has uh, studied these things in Ugarit can really understand what's being mentioned here in the Old Testament, no. No. God's Word we are told in Proverbs chapter 8, is plain to those who receive it. The, the, if the apparent sense makes sense, seek no other sense, as we like to say. All right. Uh, this is a question, obviously anonymous, given the topic, but uh, they want to know, is this concept of soul ties biblical? Uh, for those who aren't familiar, you're normal. Uh, the uh, soul ties doctrine is a classic example of people who, I think, well-intended and wanting to address a very serious issue end up i think going a little not a lot but a little too far and emphasizing a point that could be just taken again plainly it's not as bad as henotheism but it is certainly unhelpful to people who are coming from a background where they may have compromised in their sexuality yes we're discussing that topic i'll try to keep it pg but when it comes to the doctrine of soul ties the idea of if you have physical intimacy with somebody your soul is tied to them permanently that there is a bond that is unique, not just in body, but in soul. And so if you have engaged in intimacy with anyone, that that person is now married to you. And if you do it with multiple people, then your soul's being torn in all these different directions. And so it's meant to be this very dramatic, very graphic, very frightening picture of someone not wanting to venture into that department. Now, there's three directions that this ultimately ends up producing, which is why we'd again want to tone it down a little bit. Uh, first of all, the passage that it's taken from doesn't actually claim that. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Notice just 
the concept, an immoral practice of your sexuality. That applies to pornography, that applies to adultery, that applies to fornication, that applies homosexuality, to homosexuality, you name it. Yeah. So notice this, immoral sexual practice. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, excuse me, and in your spirit, which is God's. Now that's the point of emphasis that Paul ties this whole issue together with. Sexual immorality is the issue. Now I'm starting with the conclusion so that you understand where this is all leading. The soul ties concept is the immediate verse prior. Now let me again start in verse... Let me start in verse 13, and we'll give some brief context because we're running low on time. But this is how they would build up the doctrine. It says, the foods for stomach and the stomach for foods. Now, that was a proverb in Corinth where it was essentially promoting hedonism. If it feels good, do it. Why? Because, well, you have a food for a stomach. Therefore, you also have other body parts associated with other desires. Act on them. It's yeah. You can't survive unless you act in these desires. They're there for a reason. But notice Paul adds to it by saying, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So he uses the poem against itself right. in saying your purpose isn't to meet a desire. Your purpose is to glorify God. How is this done? And both God and God both, excuse me, raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power noting accountability. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? So here's the picture of the soul tie issue. You're now with Christ and a harlot. The union is now divided. Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? Note the issue. It doesn't say one soul. Right. It says one body. That's the jump. But he goes on to quote the Old Testament, for he says, And the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he was joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. Right. So here's the mistake. In contrast. Yeah. 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 And here's yeah. the mistake. They would say, well, since you're joined to God in spirit, if you join to anyone physically, you're also joined to them in spirit. The text doesn't necessarily say that. Now, I'm not dissuading or trying to undermine like the progressive churches today where they would say, well, fornication's okay, sex before marriage, if uh, you know, you're committed to that person, or you know, it's done in love. Or they would even go so far as to quote 1 Corinthians 6, 9 from the same chapter, by the way, and say that God's cleansed that action like uh, Paul or that uh, Peter saw the cleansing of the Gentiles. It says, but you were justified. And they would say, see, you're justified to do those things. That's another example of what we call eisegesis. But we don't want to let culture be our dictation of how to handle the Bible. So let's make sure that we're careful with that. Here's the point. When someone puts forward the idea, or they would over-dramatize a text with the best of intentions, you know, ends justify the means, we don't play that game. We don't right. think that that's a proper way of handling the Bible. Are there serious consequences to committing to someone in a physical manner? Yes, because God created that act for a very special purpose, and recreation is not one of them. If there is, in fact, a purpose for those things, like Paul's building up his conclusion point, then we should pay careful attention to it. Now, does that mean that it should only be for procreation? Once again, 
not what was said. You don't want to overreact to an overreaction. But are we also going to say, well, since it is something that can be taken lightly, then why bother have any standards with it at all? Also an overreaction. So we would disagree with the soul ties thing because it makes a category error in confusing the distinction Paul makes with the harlot and the body and our spirit in Christ. We're not joined to Jesus sexually nor are we joined to the prostitute spiritually. But we do need to understand that we have spiritual accountability for the reasons why we do the things that we do. And that's the difference. If I'm going to answer to God for the way I handled my body, if I'm going to be raised up with Christ, then I want that raising to be not through fire, right. same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, yeah. but through glory, yeah. something that honored him. That's yeah. the point. Yeah, um, and you know, the, the, the emphasis in all of this is that... Uh, God wants to be Lord over every area of our life, including our physical relationships. Uh, and I think uh, when we push things beyond that bound, uh, we end up saying something that the Bible just isn't saying. And we want to say as least of that as possible. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, there we go. And uh, hey, with the uh, few uh, seconds that we have left, I uh, just want to let you know we're uh, expanding our outreach a bit for those of you who follow uh, my Twitter rantings and ravings uh, at scottrfh twitter.com. Uh, I am told starting tomorrow we will be having uh, our program on the Live on X uh, platform that you'll find there on Twitter. So you can access that very quickly. Scott R4H, if you want to follow him there. Well, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for your questions. We'll look forward to next time when we have the opportunity to do the same. Until then, may the word of the Lord be in you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.